0: We're continuing on in our preparation for Resurrection Sunday. and Today we're in Matthew 27. Where we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 26. Which is Jesus' trial before the Roman governor Pilate. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26. This is what the Apostle Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, "'Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream.'" Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, "'Which of the two do you want me to release for you?' And they said, "'Barabbas.'" Pilate said to them, "'Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ?' they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be upon us and on our children. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered Him to be crucified. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord. Let's go to God now in prayer and ask for His grace now as we hear His Word. Father, we thank You that You are a God who speaks clearly to us and You have revealed Yourself in Your Word and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that no amount of human wickedness can stop your plan and your purposes for your people and that you have ordained father from before time began that your son would be delivered up into the hands of wicked men and be crucified and killed and buried and then rise again on the third day for the salvation of his people father as we hear your word this morning we pray that you would give us ears of faith we pray that we would not harden our hearts but that we would hear Your Word as we ought, that we would see ourselves in this text, and that we would respond, Father, with confession and repentance and faith in Christ. Father, we pray that You would build us up now in the Gospel of Christ. We pray for any who are among us who do not know the Lord Jesus, that You would come and do what only You can do. Open their eyes to see and to trust in Christ. Father, I pray that You would give me grace that I would speak things that are faithful and accurate to Your Word so that the Lord Jesus might have His authority in His church and receive the glory for which He shed His blood. We pray now in His name. Amen. One of the questions that has divided humanity down through the ages is the question of human nature. As a race, is humanity fundamentally good or evil? Do we come into this world bent towards empathy, and selflessness? Or are we hardwired for harshness and self-interest? You can go back as far as possible in the annals of human history, and you will find people debating precisely this question. Are we by nature good or evil? Now to some folks, this question might seem to be a pointless exercise in philosophy. Why waste time debating something that has so consistently caused division among people. But that mindset only works if you ignore the realities of this world. When you consider the extent of evil humanity has caused, this question is actually inescapable. Just this past week, we were reminded of what people are capable of. As scores of individuals in Syria, including even little children, were killed in a chemical weapons attack. That's an atrocious act of barbarism. It's terrifying. But maybe an even more terrifying question is where does that evil come from? Is it in us by nature? Or are we corrupted by our environment and the world around us? You see, it's an inescapable question. If you're trying to make sense of this world, are we by nature good or evil? And it's in answering this question that the Christian worldview differs most sharply with that of the world. I would contend that the question of human nature represents one of the largest divides between the biblical worldview and that of the culture. It's one of the broadest gaps you can find. The world around us largely believes humanity is fundamentally good. Take, for example, a major sociological study published last year in the United Kingdom. This particular study asserted that people were inherently committed to justice and selflessness. The study even went on to claim that the problem with the world was not human nature, but human passivity. If each of us would just express our inherent goodness more consistently, then the world would be better and we wouldn't use chemical weapons on one another. But the Bible gives a much different answer to this inescapable question. According to Scripture, humanity is not fundamentally good, but thoroughly corrupted by sin. Each of us comes into this world not predisposed to compassion, but to harshness. Not eager to love others, but quick to love ourselves. Now please don't misunderstand me. The Bible does not teach that human nature is worthless. Hear me very clearly on that. The Bible does not teach that human nature is worthless. Scripture clearly affirms the dignity and the value of every human being since we are all created in God's image. But that image has been marred by sin. Our hearts are bent away from God and towards ourselves. You see, friends, this is the sobering but clear reality of the biblical worldview. We are the problem, not the solution. Despite what the sociologist claims, the answer is not for humanity to overcome its passivity in order to display more consistently our inherent goodness. Can you even imagine saying something like that to one of those grieving Syrian parents? If you just would have been more active in your goodness, this wouldn't have happened to you. Can you imagine such a thing? No, the solution must come from outside of us because we are actually the problem. We need a kind of goodness that has not been corrupted by sin. We need perfection that surpasses anything we could ever muster on our own. And most of all, most of all, We need some kind of power, some kind of display of grace that would give these things to us. For we cannot produce them in ourselves. And it is that reality of human nature and our need for grace that connects us with our passage this morning in Matthew 27. In these verses, we read of Jesus' trial before the Roman governor Pilate. Pilate. Now, at one level, our text today is a historical presentation. It recounts for us the details of Jesus's hearing. It is this trial that leads to Jesus' death. And this passage presents us with the facts of the trial that are historically accurate. So it's a historical presentation. But on another level, this passage is much more than history, it also gives us insight into human nature. The actions of Pilate, the religious leaders, and the crowd are meant to show us in shocking picture what humanity is capable of when we are left to ourselves. As Charles Spurgeon once said, all the evils of human hearts of all ages were concentrated around the cross. You see, more than any other event in history, Jesus' death confronts us with just how desperately wicked we are and how much we need God to intervene on our behalf. So as we listen this morning, I want to plead with you to not be content with a passing understanding of the history of this moment. This is one of the things that frustrates me so much about literature written on the Gospels. They act as if it's just history. And so they'll spend 30 pages describing the historical evidence for Pilate. That's great! Put it in a footnote. And talk about what this text is about. Humanity's evil and need for a Savior. So let's not be content with just a passing understanding of the history. It's important, but it's not primary. Let's press further and ask ourselves questions like this. What is God teaching us about the Lord Jesus? What is He revealing about us? Our hearts, our nature, our need for a Savior. And what is He saying in this passage about the Gospel which is itself the hinge upon which all of history turns. So, if you'll look there at the text, just to give you a comment here on the structure so that you can see kind of how it's put together, I want you to see how this passage is made up of three scenes. First, there's the actual hearing before Pilate in verses 11 to 14, then there's the deliberation between Pilate and the crowd, verses 15 to 25. And then finally, there's the sentencing in verse 26. So overall, passage is made up of three scenes, which means we're going to focus on three truths this morning. We want the structure of the passage to give us the structure of our message. Three scenes, three truths. We want to zero in on each scene and ask the question, what does God intend for us to see from this particular piece of Jesus's life? What does he intend for us to see? We begin with the hearing in verses 11-14. to And here we see the perfection of the Lord Jesus. The perfection of the Lord Jesus. This is now the second trial Jesus endures in the span of a few hours. He's already been condemned by the Jewish religious leaders who falsely found Him guilty of blasphemy, which is a crime worthy of death. But the religious leaders lack the authority to execute Jesus, which is why they bring Him to Pilate. Only Pilate, as the Roman governor, has the authority to sentence a criminal to death. So from the human perspective, Jesus' fate now rests in Pilate's hands. But while Pilate has the earthly authority, it is the Lord Jesus who commands this trial. Have you ever seen a trial in which the judge ends up getting exposed by the excellence of the defendant? I haven't seen one either. But that's what happens here. This is not your typical trial. Pilate is the judge. Jesus is the defendant. Yet from beginning to end, it is Jesus' perfection that is so clearly on display. In fact, if you look carefully at the encounter, you'll notice two distinct ways Matthew highlights Jesus' perfection. First of all, he shows us Jesus' perfect wisdom. Notice the dialogue in verse 11. When the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, they don't accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Pilate doesn't care about Jewish religious squabbles. Instead, the religious leaders make a very shrewd move. They accuse Jesus of being a rebel, a political revolutionary. And that would certainly get Pilate's attention. You see, Pilate's position as governor depends on his ability to keep the peace. If he keeps the people in line, then he gets to keep his job. If the people get out of line, then Rome replaces Pilate with someone else. In fact, he's already worried that this is going to happen. The religious leaders know this, which is why they present Jesus not as a blasphemer, but as a dangerous rebel leader. So when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That's what he's getting at. He wants to know, is Jesus a threat? Is he a rebel? Is he an insurrectionist, a political revolutionary? But note Jesus' answer. Again, verse 11. You have said so. Now, Jesus is not being evasive. He's putting the responsibility back on Pilate. It's as if Jesus says to him, I am the king, but not in the way you think I am. Jesus counters their accusation with His own superior wisdom. He won't deny who He is, but He's too wise to play this game with fools. He won't deny his identity, but he also won't accept the implications behind Pilate's question. So he puts the responsibility back on Pilate. Even on trial and faced with false accusation, Jesus displays perfect wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. As the trial continues, we also see Jesus' perfect faithfulness. As you might expect, the religious leaders are not deterred by one careful answer. In verse 12, they continue to accuse Jesus of many things. They're not going to give up. They're really committed to being wicked. But again, note Jesus' response. This time, He is silent. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't return evil for evil. Even when Pilate interjects to ask for an explanation, still, Jesus remains silent. Silent. Now, try to imagine this moment, friends. Here is a man on trial for his life, facing numerous lies and false accusations, but does, instead of defending himself, he remains silent. He doesn't open his mouth, even though he knows they are lying. The question is, why? Why? Why would Jesus choose to remain silent when He has the opportunity to defend Himself? What's more, why would He remain silent when He knows the accusations are false? Why? Isaiah 53, 7 He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Friends, that is the reason for Jesus' silence. He's not admitting defeat. He's not admitting guilt. He's faithfully following His Father's will. The Lord Jesus knows He must go to the cross. He knows He must lay down His life for His people. And that is why He is silent. Because He is perfectly faithful to what the Father has ordained. In that sense, brothers and sisters, consider what a loud silence this is. Without uttering a word, the Lord Jesus is proclaiming His obedience to the Father. Without uttering a word, He is announcing to the forces of darkness that their reign will soon be over. And without uttering a word, He is preaching to us His commitment to shed His blood for us and our salvation. As one commentator has said, the Lord Jesus was silent before Pilate's judgment so that we would not be silenced at God's judgment. That's such a moving way to consider this moment. Because of Jesus' silence, we have a plea before the perfect holy God. It was Jesus' silence that enables us to say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Never has a silence been so powerful, and never has silence brought such joy. What an amazing moment this is. In fact, that's how the formal portion of the trial ends. Look at the end of verse 14. The governor was greatly amazed, he was impressed. This is not your typical trial because Jesus is not your typical defendant. He is innocent, he is full of wisdom and he is faithful to the end. That's what we must take away from these verses. The trial before Pilate reveals to us the perfection of the Lord Jesus. The next section of the passage, however, reveals something quite different. In verses 15-25, to Pilate deliberates with the crowd, and this deliberation gives us our second truth The corruption of human nature. The corruption of human nature. Now at this point in the proceedings, Pilate is reluctant to hand Jesus over to death. He's not convinced Jesus has done anything deserving of death, but at the same time, he doesn't want to risk appearing indifferent to someone accused of rebellion. So, he begins this back and forth deliberation with the crowd, and with the religious leaders. But perhaps what is most striking about this deliberation is how it clearly reveals humanity's corruption. Again, I think of a quote from Mr. Spurgeon. The crucifixion of Christ was the crowning sin of the human race. Friends, that's how we must understand this portion of the passage, not simply as the record of Pilate's deliberation, but as clear evidence of our depravity if there was any doubt as to what is in us by nature, then this scene settles the debate. If there was ever a moment that would have elicited the inherent goodness of humanity, surely it's the Son of God on trial for His life. as we watch Pilate go back and forth, and as we watch the religious leaders scheme and the crowd call for Jesus' blood, as we watch those events unfold, we see the true state of our hearts apart from God's grace. So here's here's what I want to do. I want to go through the deliberation paying attention to Pilate, the religious leaders, and the crowd. Those three groups. And with each one, we're asking the same question. What does this teach us about ourselves, about human nature. We begin with Pilate, and this is what we see. Like Pilate, we are guilty of willfully ignoring the truth. We are guilty of willfully ignoring the truth. Pilate knows the truth. He knows Jesus is innocent. That's why he offers to release Jesus in verse 17. Pilate hopes his custom of amnesty during the feast will give him an out to this sticky situation. He knows Jesus is innocent. He has no doubt. What's more, Pilate knows the religious leaders are driven by envy. Look at verse 18. Pilate's not fooled by their accusations. He knows the religious leaders couldn't care less about Roman authority. They care about themselves and protecting their own power. And Pilate knows this. He's not fooled by their schemes. But if there was any doubt in Pilate's mind, it should be cleared up by an incredible moment of revelation. Look at verse 19. Pilate's wife comes to him with a warning. She has had a dream. The only other people in the book of Matthew that have dreams are the Magi and Joseph. So this is God talking. She's had a dream about Jesus that has caused her great suffering. And notice how she describes Him as that righteous man, or we could translate it, the righteous one. Friends, that should be all the confirmation Pilate needs. God has not left him in the dark, but has revealed to him His truth. Pilate knows where this is going. And he knows what's going on. And yet, what does Pilate do? He ignores the truth and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Look at verses 21 to 23. Pilate's amnesty ploy doesn't work as the people choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. So Pilate suppresses the truth that he knows and sentences Jesus to death. He makes this pathetic show of washing his hands in verse 24 as though he were not guilty, but that's just an empty ritual that's only fooling Pilate. He is guilty. And there is nothing he can do on his own to take away that guilt. He has ignored the truth in order to protect himself. Brothers and sisters, we should be reminded here that humanity's problem is not a lack of evidence. Humanity's problem is not a lack of evidence. Like Pilate, God has clearly revealed His truth both in His creation and in His Word. This is the Apostle Paul's entire argument in Romans chapters 1 to 3. God has revealed his truth so that we are without excuse. Humanity's problem is not a lack of evidence. Our problem is that by nature we suppress the truth we have received. You see, we're just like Pilate at this point. We ignore what God has revealed and we instead look for ways to protect ourselves and protect what is most precious to us our own sense of autonomy. That we run our lives. And then we go through these pathetic rituals to absolve ourselves from guilt. When in reality, we are thoroughly guilty. Apart from God's grace, this is the depth of humanity's corruption. We willfully ignore God's truth. The problem's not a lack of evidence. Next, we look at the religious leaders like the religious leaders, we are hard-hearted in opposing the truth. We are hard-hearted in opposing the truth. Look at verse 20 and notice how wicked these leaders are. These are the men who have been tasked with leading the people to know and follow God's Word. Their entire lives were meant to be devoted to this one task, shepherding the people according to the Scriptures. And then Yet, what do we find them doing here at the end? Not shepherding the people with the truth, but misleading the people by opposing the truth. You can almost see it in your mind's eye, can't you? These religious leaders lurking and sneaking through the crowd. They're whispering lies about Jesus in the ears of the people. And then they're whipping them into a raging frenzy. Their hearts are like stone. They don't just ignore the truth like Pilate. They are actively opposed to the truth as well. And that, friends, is what we should take away from this moment. The religious leaders remind us that humanity is not positively inclined to God's Word. We're not even neutral. We're actively opposed. Actively opposed to God's Word. Left to ourselves, we will not give God's truth a fair hearing. By nature, we will work to purposefully twist, distort, and deny what God has spoken. Oh, how hard hearted we are because of sin, and how desperately we need God's grace. There's one more, though. Finally, we come to the crowd, the frenzied crowd that by the end is a raging mob. And this is what we see. Like the crowd, we are blind to the truth. You see the progression ignoring, opposing, blindness. Like the crowd, we are blind to the truth. Pilate gives the crowd a clear choice. They can either have Barabbas, who is guilty of murder and rebellion, or they can have Jesus, who is innocent and perfectly righteous. Now, from our perspective and with the help of Scripture, the truth is really quite clear. They should choose Jesus. He's the one who deserves to be released because He is truly righteous. And yet, what does the crowd do? They choose Barabbas. And why? Because they are blind To the truth. Listen, this was not a hard question. It's not hard. The truth is standing in front of them in flesh and blood. I mean, before their very eyes, they have a man who takes lives, Barabbas, and they have a man who restores lives, Jesus. It's not a hard question. And yet, what do they do? They choose Barabbas. They can see it, but they can't see it. Their hearts are dead in sin and they are unable to see the truth even as it stands before them in flesh and blood. Again, friends, there's a reminder here for us. When it comes to the truth of the Gospel, above all else, what we need is not more evidence or more arguments. We need divine intervention. We need God and His grace to invade our dead hearts with His life-giving Spirit and then open our blind eyes to see the truth. You see, brothers and sisters, the embrace of truth always begins with God and not us. This is why the first step in someone becoming a Christian is not their expression of faith or their prayer of the sinner's prayer, but God's gift of the new birth. God's action precedes ours. We have to be regenerated first by the Spirit, and then and only then will we embrace Christ by faith. In fact, it's God's work to give us the new birth that is the cause of our believing in the first place. We're blind to the truth. And unless God acts on our behalf, we're going to be blind till we go to hell. I believe because God gave me eyes to see and a heart to believe. Without His intervening grace, I would have remained in my blindness just like the crowd. And I would have been content to reject Jesus each and every time I heard this good news. It doesn't matter that my parents brought me up in the church or that I was born in America or that I could read a Bible written in English. All those things are blessings, but they are secondary to God's grace intervening in my life. If you're a Christian, this is how you became one. God acting to open your eyes and give you life so that you would believe. Every conversion and all true spiritual life begins with God's action, not ours. Now, for those who belong to Christ, this Truth should produce two fruits in our lives. I'm not interested in theological controversy for controversy's sake. This truth should do two things in us. It it should produce two fruits in us. First of all, it should make us deeply and winsomely joyful. Joyful. Deeply and winsomely joyful. Oh, what a tragedy it is when churches and Christians that embrace God's sovereignty and salvation are marked by a lack of joy. What a tragedy that is. We above all people should be joyful and glad to know this sovereign God. We were dead and God gave us life. We were blind and God opened our eyes. We were hopeless and hateful, just like the crowd here in Matthew, and God sovereignly broke our rebellion and made us His own. Brothers and sisters, this truth should cause us to overflow with a kind of joy that answers our critics and causes unbelievers to stop and ask, what is this good news that you so love? If you rejoice in the doctrines of grace, and if you rejoice in God's sovereignty and salvation, and it doesn't move you to joyful, deep worship, then you don't understand those doctrines, friend. We above all people should be deeply and winsomely joyful. That's the first fruit this truth should produce. Joy. The second fruit is this. This truth should make us fervent and faithful in prayer. This truth should make us fervent and faithful in prayer. I'm not picking prayer to minimize action on our part. I'm just picking prayer because it captures our need. Let me put it as clearly as I can. Unless God acts in His sovereign grace, we will not see a single sinner saved. We will not see our neighbors saved. We will not see our own children saved. We are absolutely dependent on the sovereign saving grace of God. And therefore, we should be fervent in prayer, asking God to do what only He can do. Brothers and sisters, do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for God to save your children, your neighbors? Do you pray on Sunday mornings that God would save those among us who do not yet know Christ? Do you pray for our brothers who are out nearly every week preaching the Gospel across our area? Do you pray for the countless millions across the globe who have never even heard Jesus' name? Do you pray in these ways? I'll confess, I am not nearly as prayerful in these ways as I ought to be. At times, it seems as though I still think I can evangelize someone into the Kingdom of God. Or worse, I assume someone else is doing the work and they'll pray for it. Is that you too? If so, then let's be corrected by this truth. By faith, let's be fervent in prayer, asking God to do what only God can do. Open the eyes of the blind to see and trust in Christ. So friends, I hope we see this second scene is much more than a record of Pilate's deliberation. It is that, but in the midst of this history, I pray we also see ourselves, our depravity, our corruption, and thus our profound need for the gospel. And that takes us right into the final scene of the passage. God's Word reveals our sin and our corruption, but the good news is that Scripture does not stop there. The Bible also reveals to us the good news of God's grace in Christ. And that's where we're going to close with our final truth. Verse 26, we read of Jesus' sentencing, and here we see the grace of the Gospel. The grace of the Gospel. Again, you'll notice that Pilate's plan backfires. The crowd chooses Barabbas over Jesus. And the crowd could not be more clear in their rejection of Christ. As they shout for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate even interjects and asks them, why? What evil has he done? But still the crowd shouts all the more, let him be crucified. And so we read Jesus' sentence, verse 26. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now Jesus is the one on trial here and this is technically His sentencing, but Jesus' sentencing actually ends up looking more like an exchange. Did you notice it when we read? Barabbas is guilty of what the religious leaders accused Jesus of doing. They accuse Jesus of being a rebel. Barabbas is a rebel. He has taken up arms against Rome and he has murdered and taken life in an effort to overthrow the government. That's what they accuse Jesus of. He's innocent. Barabbas really is a rebel. And yet, Barabbas is released. His life is exchanged for Jesus' life. Friends, that exchange, Barabbas for Jesus, is a striking illustration of the gospel. Think about it for a moment. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. Barabbas is pardoned because Jesus is condemned. Barabbas is forgiven because Jesus is punished. Barabbas lives because Jesus dies. That exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous, is exactly what happens in the Gospel. We are Barabbas. That's why we spent so much time just a moment ago on the corruption of human nature. I wanted you to see it when we got here. We are Barabbas. We are guilty. We are rebels. We deserve death. But in the unfathomable grace of God, this great exchange happens. The Lord Jesus dies in our place. He serves as our substitute. He takes the punishment we deserved. And what's more, he then gives us his life, his righteousness, so that we are both pardoned and made right with God. You see, as sinners, we have two great needs before God. We we have two great needs. We are both unrighteous and we are guilty. There is a law that we have not kept, and there is the law that we have broken. So we haven't lived up as we ought and we have this this penalty, this debt we cannot pay. We have two great needs as sinners. We're unrighteous and we are guilty. So we need righteousness and we need atonement. And through His life and death, the perfect Lord Jesus meets both of those needs. He provides us with a righteousness we could not earn and He pays the debt we could not pay. So when you place your faith in Christ, this amazing exchange happens. It's the exchange of the Gospel. Jesus takes your punishment and He gives you His own righteousness. I hope you heard it when our brother Greg prayed earlier. He clothes you in His own righteousness. So that when God looks upon you, He sees the sinless, perfect righteousness of His Son. And that when He looked upon His Son at the cross, He sees your horrible, wretched, truth-ignoring, opposing, blindness, sin on His Son. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of the more important verses in the Bible. If you haven't memorized it, you should memorize it. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That exchange, friends, is the heart of of the Gospel. The righteous for the righteous. And it's the reason why the Gospel is good news. You know, people sometimes ask me, how can I love the Gospel more? How can I be filled with greater joy and thankfulness for what Christ has done? And maybe surprisingly, I sometimes answer, Study the doctrine of sin. Or to put it in the language of this passage, see yourself as Barabbas. Guilty, vile, helpless, deserving death. And only through the exchange of Christ's life for yours. There is a relationship between your understanding of your own sin and your experience of worship around the Gospel. There is a proportional relationship The more you see your sin, the greater you understand your need. And the greater you understand your need, the deeper your joy becomes in celebrating what Christ has done. I had a friend of mine who said it like this one time. He said, imagine that you're at a doctor's office and you've had your annual physical and the doctor comes in and he says, good news, the surgery center has a spot open next week. Now, if you don't know that you have a dangerous tumor growing inside, that doesn't sound like good news. It just sounds like, that's great. I'm glad they have space to do business. But if before that good news, the doctor says, you need help or you're going to die, then his message becomes the best news you've ever heard. I think that's capturing the idea of what's going on here. You've got to see the depth of your need. You've got to see yourself as Pilate, as the religious leaders, as the crowd, as Barabbas. You've got to see yourself in that kind of need before the Gospel becomes sweet. Some of the most joyful Christians I have ever known are humble saints who have been well acquainted with their sin and their need for Christ. They knew they were Barabbas. They knew they were guilty rebels who deserved death. And that's precisely why Their hearts soared so high and so freely in the worship of Christ because they understood in a very personal way that apart from Christ, they had no hope. So, as we close, brothers and sisters, and prepare to come to the Lord's table, I invite you here at the end to do just one simple thing. Fix your eyes on the man in verse 26 who is sentenced to be scourged and crucified. Fix your eyes on this man and believe that those are your stripes he received. Those are your nails he would take. That was your cross he bore. That was your death he died. And that was your judgment he received. By nature, we are not good, but desperately wicked. We are corrupt in every part of our being. But the grace of the Gospel is that God sent His perfect Son to die, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. May the Spirit give us eyes to see this truth and believe it and rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that reveals to us the truth of our condition. That apart from Your grace, we have no good. We have no ability to please You. We have no desire to please You. Thank You also, Father, for Your Word revealing to us the good news of the Gospel that Christ, the Righteous One, the perfect Son of God, would exchange His life for ours, taking our judgment and giving us His own sinless righteousness. Help us to believe these things, Father. Help us to be people who are quick to rejoice at Your sovereign saving grace. And help us to be people who are fervent and faithful in prayer that the lost might be saved through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray now, Father, that You would encourage us as we come to Christ's table. Help us to remember His body broken and His blood shed on our behalf for the glory of His name and for our encouragement in the faith. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.